Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to know. Here's Sexplanations with Dr. Doe. Sexplanations podcast episode 76 on circumcision. It's basically relaunching the Sexplanations podcast. And so in that way, I'm very excited, but also uh, a little nerve-wracked because this episode is so heated and I am really passionate about it. So I wanted to have the best of the best for the conversation. Brendan Murata, the director of American Circumcision, which is a documentary all about circumcision that is available on Netflix. Big deal, Brendan. Thank you. Yeah, it is a very heated topic, but uh, that's part of what makes it interesting. Oh, I like your positive attitude. Well, a lot of issues, I I think when most people frame this issue, they frame it as a sort of surface like risks, benefits, but it actually gets at all the values that are really interesting to, to most people about like, how do you raise your children and what, what does sexual freedom mean? Do you have the right to make your own decisions about your body? Uh, and so that's kind of the stuff that I think makes people really heated. And a lot of the time people don't realize they're having a conversation about that. They think they're having a conversation about, you know, just data or something like that, but it's actually an issue of sexuality and sexual freedom. So this feels like a good place to talk about it. Human rights. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So some, some background that I want to share with you. I don't know if I've shared this with you, but when I was, Going to the university, taking my first human sexuality course, we saw a movie called Whose Body, Whose Rights, which is a documentary that was even dated at that time. And I remember the instructor of the course talking to me later about what content I really valued and what I didn't. And I said, above all things, that video is a must. It needs to stay in the curriculum. It's so powerful, but I wish there was an updated version of it. And I remember then... Uh, that instructor who is so forward thinking and really um, combated the uh, erotocentricity, this idea that like his sexuality was everybody's sexuality, still kind of talked about that video as propaganda and was surprised that I was so adamantly in love with it. Um, And so I took two things away from that experience. One, that even... The smartest people out there, people who I would consider my mentors, are still wrestling with the the circumcision discussion, and that the the resources we had at the time needed updating. So here we are. You've essentially taken this movie that I that changed my life, Brendan. Like. When people say, hey, Lindsay, what are your biggest uh, sexual health issues or what what do you care the most about? The two biggies are circumcision and preventing it, um, at least in routine infant situations and uh, sex and disability. I, I also am a huge fan of sex work at this point and legalizing it. But it's up there because of this movie. And you have done me my life goal, like given me the life goal gift of recreating it. I for so long was like, okay, how do I raise money and how do I learn how to be a documentarian so that I can update this precious film? And you did it for me. (laughs) So I just feel so grateful for your project. And oh gosh, I, I don't know how to communicate at this time what a big deal it is what you did. For me, in a personal way, not e- not even the fact that you are going to change the world, but just for me as a sexologist and a human being and somebody who cares about this very deeply, I feel like you just gave me one of the greatest gifts I will ever receive in this lifetime. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if audio will capture the expression I have right now, <laughs> but it's very grateful and a bit shy. Aww. So thank you. I'm Terry. We're, we'll, <laughs> we, yes. Audio, do your best to to (laughs) convey the emotion. Yeah, so it's a big deal. It's a big deal to talk to you and um, get to to say Skype face-to-face. Thank you for doing what you did. I appreciate that. 
It's funny you mentioned that film. That was one of the first things that I saw. And I, I spoke with the creator of that film in the process of working on my own. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't have anything else to add beyond that, except, uh, I think that, again, this is an issue that really changes people's lives. And, it's in the mainstream, it's often presented as the opposite as sort of unimportant and like it's a decision parents make and then you never think about again. But in reality, um, it's a decision that permanently alters someone's body and how could a permanent alteration not result in a permanent change? So I'm glad that I've been able to contribute to change in a positive way. Indeed. You have, uh, tremendously. So let's see, what are, what are all the questions I want to ask you? Is there anything you want to say first? Uh, uh, watch the film. It's, I want, I want people to see it. And, um, my hope is that it leads to the kind of conversations that I think we're about to have. So we can just jump into it. Good. Um, if people don't have Netflix, it is on Amazon and Vimeo and iTunes and everywhere else you get movies and you can find it at circumcisionmovie.com. How did you pull off that magic? Uh, well, I worked on the film a long time and I got that domain really early, which is one of the best decisions I made. And then, I mean, my background's in film. I've went to film school. I've wanted to make films since I was 14. So we got, we got a distributor and did it that way. Wow. And all of those different platforms elected to, to feature you. Yeah. Um, there's a whole other discussion there, um, around independent film distribution, but you know, the, because this is a issue that affects everyone and there's not a lot on it, and there's no downside to listing it there. I mean, all those platforms want to make money. So, well, I would say in watching the film, that was one of the curiosities I had the whole time is how did this get on Netflix? Because with sexplanations, typically, you know, the videos on YouTube, there is a lot of demonetization and hiding mm. of content and, um, just weird kind of discrimination things. And I, I know that with circumcision, when I bring it up, people who have been circumcised, it's like hard to cope with. And so you get a range of responses, but sometimes it's like, it doesn't matter. I'm great without, like, I don't, whatever. And so there's no interest in looking any further into what happened and why we might want to change our behaviors as species. And then you have people who would watch something like that and then want to share it with the whole world. And so in my head, I was like, oh my goodness, somebody high up at Netflix saw Brendan's film and is on the share it with everyone side where they, they are willing to face this and want a difference. And for somebody at that in like the corporate structure of Netflix, in this fantasy of mine, to have that outlook. I was just so happy. I don't know if there was anyone there who felt that way. I know that <laughs> okay. there's other, the, the film festivals that I have gotten into and the other platforms or places that I've tried to pitch something. There's often one person in who really likes it and is sort of the champion behind the scenes. Um, with this, I don't know. I actually suspect it might've just been like some, you know, accountant there or someone who worked in acquisitions just was like, yeah, that makes sense. And bought it. Mm. Um, cause we're an independent documentary and, you know, Netflix will spend millions producing original content. And so to be able to acquire a niche documentary. That's sort of a thing that they have a lot of on their platform. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there is just someone for whom it made sense there, but, but you're right that I, you know, there is a lot of censorship of this kind of content of anything that explores controversial issues or anything that explores sexuality. 
And so I went into it expecting that to happen and it didn't. And I was actually really surprised by that. Mm. And I think that there, if, if I had to guess, there were sort of two reasons for that. One is that I was really anticipating it and kind of knew where the lines were and what objections people would make. So I suspect even listening to this podcast, there's some people who, you know, are not on board with this issue who think that the enthusiasm we have is a bit ridiculous or that they have some, something that they're triggered by even about the conversation. Mm -hmm. And because I've talked to a lot of people about this, I'm sort of aware of what those potential triggers are. And in the film, tried to anticipate them. So part of the challenge of making a film is that, you know, when I'm speaking one-on-one with someone, I can kind of know what their perspective is and what they need to hear. But a film, some of my audience uh, is going to be very adamant about a particular perspective and know a lot of information only from that perspective. And some are not even going to know what circumcision is. And you have to explain that to them in the course of the film. So my job as a filmmaker is to anticipate that and anticipate the objections too. They've actually done studies on, on science education where if you just explain a concept to someone uh, and they have a misconception, it actually reinforces the misconception because now they think they've been educated, but they already had this misconception. Whereas if you have a dialogue between two people and you address the misconception, then it actually changes their mind. So in the process of making the film, I had to address all the potential objections someone might have. So they might say it's there's some sort of medical benefit or it's their preference or it's their religion or culture. And even to criticize that aspect is, you know, somehow uh, uh, shows a hatred of their religion or culture. Um, and so we addressed all of that. Uh, and I, I think that that also left people who might want to silence this discussion with not a lot to, to reach for. So we interview people who have both perspectives in the film. We interview people who are very influential on both sides and we let each of them have their say. And so I don't know that there was a way for someone to say, Oh, well, you didn't address this or you only showed this and any sort of objection. The only time I've heard someone really have any objection was when they hadn't seen the film. Mm. Um, and so then the other piece was, you know, because that didn't leave a lot of ground for criticism, we didn't have any sort of public scandal of any kind. And I've had friends who've made controversial documentaries before. Um, and usually if someone is deplatformed or has someone come after them, it's because there's, usually they, they lose that because someone consciously chose to act on their offense. Um, and with Netflix, I had a friend who, whose film was all the way up to being listed on Netflix and then pulled at the last minute. And I think everyone was pretty certain that it was because someone didn't like the perspective of her film. Mm. Uh, whereas with this, I don't know that, Anyone like we didn't have someone who knew we were being listed on that platform and was gunning to make it not happen. Um, and the distributor we were working with gets films on Netflix all the time and they like selling things to people because it makes them money. And so it just kind of worked <laughs> out, you know? I mean, like it, it's weird. Like I don't know that it would be anything beyond that we went with someone who could make that sale and they wanted to do it. And like, it hasn't brought them any controversy. So it's not like there's anyone like mad at Netflix about it that I've seen. Um, even the people who have an opposite perspective haven't really commented on the film. They're sort of chosen a strategy of, well, maybe if we just ignore this issue, it'll go away as if that's how human rights and social change issues work. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that, that's been the process there. I read, I don't know where, maybe I'll look it up and put it in the description, but I, I read something about how you had um, created a very balanced controversy, so to speak. So, so even though you're doing exactly what you said, where you're teaching people about what circumcision is and the viewpoints that we have on it, and I, I do believe that coming away from that, I feel, yes, 
circumcision is something that we should not do to infants. Um, I still think that you did a great job of balancing the perspectives and um, not framing one side or the other as less than or evil or anything like that. You just hold space for their voice. Yeah. That's my goal. Uh, you know, I th- want people to listen to me. So <laughs> it's good to listen, practice with that and listen to others. And it's also on issues like this. Uh, I think people have the idea when they see someone taking someone else's rights away or oppressing the sexuality of someone else, that it is coming from like a conscious choice to do wrong as opposed to Mm. a lack of awareness. And many of the, the, you know, I've said before that I think the conflict in the film is between people who are willing to feel their feelings and people who aren't. And when I look at uh, the people who dismiss the feelings of men who feel harmed by circumcision or feel like that their sexuality was negatively impacted or that a, a part of their body was taken away without their consent, they don't strike me as people who are very in touch with their own feelings, who are very aware mm-hmm. of how they feel. And so when I talk about this issue, I, I usually want people to feel their feelings. And that comes... Uh, often with a gentler touch, because if you if you yell at someone or berate them, they get defensive and the, you know, all of the, the psychological defenses go up. It's very hard to listen while you're triggered. So if someone is triggered, then the thing to do is to notice that trigger and just be conscious of it and start exploring it, which is hopefully what the film helps people do is just explore the feelings they have about this issue. And we give a lot of scientific information and data and different perspectives and history in order to help people explore that. But at the end of it, what matters is how all of that information makes them feel and what it reveals about their values, which is in some way the more interesting conversation. Uh, yes. So now I have two questions for you on top of that. One is, how did it make you feel? And the other one is, because you have so much experience having these conversations and accessing people's emotions, do you have suggestions for me on how I could um, do this with more gentle touch? See, I feel like you do a really good job. So let's start there. Um, oh, thank and you. I, I considering well, you you are really good at uh, one of the things I really like about your work is that you approach subjects that people have a lot of shame about with a complete lack of shame and even a little bit of joy. So. <laughs> There's, yeah, exactly. There's curiosity, there's all of those things. And so I think a lot of the subjects that you approach are things that other people might normally get uncomfortable about. Uh, And so having someone else go into that exploration with you who is comfortable and who doesn't see them as shameful and is okay with whatever feelings you have might come up makes it a lot easier. For me, uh, on this issue, uh, what came up for me was, as I was working on the film, I have a very strong need to be heard. I think most people do, but especially if you had points in your childhood or upbringing where you weren't heard, Mm -hmm. then that need is amplified a little bit because it's unmet. And at the time I discovered this issue, I was doing a lot of research on how early life events affect people. And, And I actually had a friend who, when she was really young, her, her mother had to go back to work like two weeks, three weeks after she was born. And so she would just be alone in the house for like hours and hours at a time. Um, no one taking care of her, you know, newborn infant. And she had a lot of abandonment issues that came from that, which, you know, I think most people who, um, 
have experienced something like that, sort of understand it. And so I was learning a lot about how even small things that people do when children are young affect them later on in life. And that's becoming more understood and there's lots of research about it. But on this issue, people are somewhat dismissive of it. So when I was researching this, one of the first things I found out is that very often the procedure of circumcision is done without anesthesia. And that Mm -hmm. for a long time, doctors thought babies didn't feel pain. Um, And so I looked at that and thought, okay, well, if not being held as a child, I mean, there's cases in orphanages where if children aren't held, they die, right? Mm -hmm. If that, if that is true, then what would taking a blade to someone's genitals do? Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things too, where if I told you that as a child, someone touched me without my consent. I think most people would have a lot of sympathy and empathy for that. And if I said someone cut a part of my body off without my consent, you know, if they chopped off a finger or an ear, I think most people would be horrified by that too. But if I say someone touched my genitals without my consent and chopped part of them off, the societal reaction is, so that's normal. Why do you, why are you being weird about it? There must be something wrong with you to talk about it. The only reason anyone would talk about that is that there's just, uh, they're either insecure or they just hate the groups of people that practice that. And there must be something wrong with you. Right. Um, and so when I started working on the film, I just felt like I'd share that information and about this issue about, you know, how the foreskin has more nerve endings than any other part of a man's body and that it's very painful and traumatic for the child and that people should have their own choices about their body. And then they would just sort of get it. But what I found is that there's a lot more to it than just that, that people don't make decisions based on just their rational mind. They make it based on their identity and their values. And that if you tell someone that this is wrong, then there is a tendency to, if they're identified with some part of it, think, well, then that must mean I'm wrong in some way. There's something wrong about me. On on other things, you would talk about something happened to you, but on this, people say, I am circumcised, right? Like the you know, same way that you might say that, you know, you are a woman or you are a particular sexual orientation or race or whatever it is. And when you criticize circumcision, it feels to many people like you're attacking an equally part of their identity thing. Like this isn't a thing that they can't change about themselves and they react the way that you would, if you attacked some unchangeable Mm -hmm. aspect of their identity. And in reality, circumcision is something that happened to you. You wouldn't say, you know, if you go in for, for back surgery, I am back surgery, right? That would be absurd. You'd say I had, that's the thing that happened to me. Right. And similarly, circumcision is something that happened to you. It is not an I piece of your identity. And I think when people can separate their identity from the wound, from the thing that happened to them, then it's a lot easier to talk about. And their identity and their values might be different. So I suspect for a lot of people in your audience, their identity and values have a lot to do with freedom and personal autonomy and the right to your own body. And that that might be the part of their identity that's more important than a particular thing that happened to them or even a particular choice that they made from their child for the, for their child at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is difficult to untangle that in just conversation. So part of the reason that I, I make art is that it's a way to, speak to those identity level things uh, a lot quicker. Like the conversation, part of the reason I made the film was I found myself having a conversation with people over and over about this issue. And that moves a lot quicker when I, and it's a lot more powerful when I can show you the voices <laughs> of those people talking and let you see their feelings and all of that. Um, yeah. So agreed. Yeah. So, so I mean like, as far as advice for talking about this, um, the more that you feel your own feelings, the easier it is to see others' feelings. Like I can spot those triggers in someone because I had them all. I know that when I first discovered this issue, there's a part of me that thought, well, I can't do anything about that. So, you know, like why think about it? Why talk about it? Why not just push it out of my mind? And what, what I found there is that even though 
it is a uncomfortable subject to think about at times that allowing myself to feel that allowed me to feel even more. So similar to how many people who survive sexual abuse, when they heal and process that sexual abuse, they can enjoy and feel more of their sexuality. When you actually become aware of this issue, especially as a man, there's a, there's a greater awareness of the body. There's greater feeling there. You're more aware of the sensations that you do have. So for me, I found that being willing to feel some of the uncomfortable aspects of this issue in the short term led to greater joy and pleasure long-term because mm-hmm. I wasn't putting all that energy into repressing the feeling and avoiding it. And, you know, like when you see people, um, who, who are doing that, you know, I used to, I sometimes joke like when they, I'll just share that I've worked on this film people before I've even asked them or said anything about my perspective or asked them anything about themselves will say, well, I'm fine with it. And it's like this sort of like tense reaction and you can see the shoulders come up to the the ears. And I've even seen people like unconsciously guard their genitals when, when you bring up the issue and it's like, you're telling me you're fine, but your, your body is not telling me you're fine. Like your body is acting from some unconscious guarding. So Yeah. Feeling your feelings and being aware of what others are feeling. Since you have so much practice having these conversations, how do you define circumcision? Uh, Circumcision is the surgical removal of the foreskin. And that's the simplest definition. Often I will tell people how the procedure is done because I think when people visualize it in their mind, they visualize someone like taking a pair of scissors and just snipping something. They don't realize it's a 15 minute involved surgical procedure that the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands, kind of like how your fingernail is fused to your finger. And the first thing the doctor has to do is to break that away. So if you can imagine someone sliding an instrument between your finger and your fingernail, that's what they have to do to the child day one of his life. Um, even though they will use topical anesthetic, it may not reach the inner parts of the foreskin where that is. And topical anesthesia is not fully effective. And the way that most doctors do it isn't fully effective. Um, so that will hurt no matter what the doctor does. And then they play, place a clamp on it. The clamp cuts off circulation in that part of the body and applies thousands of tons of pressure and sits on there for 15 minutes. So again, if you can imagine, you know, one doctor described it to me as like a thousand elephants on one little point, um, that tons of pressure just on that part of the body. And it sits there for 15 minutes and then, uh, a blade is used to cut that part off. So it's a long procedure. And, and when I did the first edit of the film, most people told me they skipped the scene where we show it. Like they couldn't even watch it. And it was interesting because the activists who'd seen the procedure before, when they saw that scene, they said, that was a lot. That was not as bad as I was expecting. They've seen ones that were much scarier mm-hmm. and more traumatic. And the people who have never seen one before said that was a lot. That was actually really difficult to watch. And what I ended up having to do is, that, you know, that scene, uh, I had a version of it that was like six minutes and no one was watching that. And then in editing it, I got it down to three minutes. And even then, no one would watch it. And what I found was the people didn't know how long that scene was going to be. So they would just skip it. You know, you don't know if I'm about to spring 20 minutes of footage on you or just 20 seconds. So I put a title card at the front says, you know, the full procedure is 20 minutes. We're only going to show you two minutes. Just sort of letting my audience know, like, this is what it's going to be. Because I knew if I add it to 30 seconds, people will think, oh, it's just a 30 second procedure. But like, it's not. It's relatively involved. But that also says something that adults just watching the procedure want to skip it. Right. But a child can't do that. And a child's also experiencing time differently than we do. 
Like right. it doesn't, when that procedure starts, it doesn't know how long it's going to be. It doesn't know if this is what its life on earth is going to be. It's just arrived here. Uh, and so when that happens, it, it doesn't have the uh, adult ability to go, okay, well, let's see, this is going to be, you know, 20 minutes and it's going to be really painful, but I can endure, you know, it thinks like, this is just what, the, this is how my parents want to treat me. This is, this is what's, what my value is. This is what my safety in this relationship to my mother is. Um, and it's during a time when the child is forming its base preverbal awareness and assumptions about reality. So, so that's, uh, that's how I explain it. Um, hopefully that's clear. I mean, the technical is. definition is relatively simple, but I think that, you know, part of the challenge with this issue is that when people give uh, what they call informed consent for it. So any medical procedure you have, the doctor is supposed to give informed consent, which is what any reasonable person would want to know. So if you're, you know, like I said, getting like shoulder surgery, they'll say, well, here are the potential, what we think the outcome will be. Here are the potential risks. Uh, here's what could go wrong. And I think if you're going to give information on this, it has to include all of that as well. Cause if I say like, Oh, it's just, we're going to remove this part. If you don't understand what that part of the body is, if you don't understand what impact it'll have on the child, not just physically, but psychologically and in relationship to you, then mm -hmm. I'm not giving you the full picture. So the definition is relatively simple. It's all the other stuff that people leave out. That's important to talk about. Yeah. I think Earlier, when you were talking about um, the questions that you'd ask a person, like it, what, if I had told you that I had that somebody had touched me without my consent, how would you feel? Or if I told you that somebody had touched my genitals, or that they cut a part of my body, or that they cut a part of my genitals, and all those different things, I think my responses are: if somebody has touched you, I'm horrified by that, right? Because right now, especially in, in, during the Me Too movement, we're all about body autonomy. And we also default to this belief that if somebody invades your privacy in that way, it is traumatizing. So as a child, if you grow up, there's going to be a ton of um, stuff that you try to unpack, hopefully, but it, it's there. It affects you. And when you talk about removing body parts or a cut or something like that, my brain goes, yeah, but the only reason why you would do that is because there is a medical necessity for it. And so if you were to tell me like somebody cut off a part of my genitals, I would be like, yeah, it, probably because you would die otherwise. Like my brain justifies it immediately. Mm -hmm. And so what really caused cognitive di disequilibrium for me when I first learned about this in college was that there isn't a medical reason for it. And so they are doing a, a cut that touch that is traumatic, but then they are doing something that's physically permanently damaging and affects the person's, if they choose to be sexual, their sexual life, their masturbation and the lives of their partners on the receiving end of any sort of penetrative play. Oh gosh, right? It's like such a mind fuck. Well, then there's also the layer of that explanation of saying, well, we did it for your own good, right? That's a whole other layer. I mean, that phrase for your own good has a particular history in parenting and it invalidates all the feelings that you had just come up, right? So mm -hmm. if someone says, well, we did this for your own good, Oh, okay. So I, I guess I'm not allowed to be upset about it then. Cause you know, now that all of that other stuff is not okay. But then when you get into it, okay, well, what good were you doing it for? Um, well, we thought it would conform to uh, our social standards and what we wanted. And there are these supposed marginal medical benefits that uh, now we've found out are mostly BS and even pro circumcision groups will acknowledge are not very persuasive. Um, that was one of the interesting things that I found in researching the film is that when you talk to the, 
uh, older people in the medical establishment who've advocated for this. It's really interesting the change in perspective that the mainstream medical establishment has had. So when you talk to the people who wrote the earlier American Academy of Pediatrics position statements on circumcision, they are pro-circumcision. They think mm-hmm. circumcision is good. Um, the one who wrote their policy statement in the 80s actually had written poetry praising circumcision. Mm-hmm. He's, he is all for it. He's all in on it. When you talk to the people on their most recent policy statement, which, by the way, has lapsed. They don't have a policy statement now, uh, I think in part because they've tried to run away from this issue. Uh, they say the benefits are not really compelling um, and that the reason we allow it is for the cultural benefits. So certain cultural groups want to do this and they should be allowed to do it. And they come from this sort of like cultural or parental choice perspective. They're not pro-circumcision. They just think people should be allowed to do this, which is a, a very different argument and a very different ethic and ignores the fact that for a significant portion of their history, they were telling parents it is a medical issue and you have to do it. And it also ignores the way that they act on other issues. So they don't believe in parental choice on other medical interventions. They'll say on other medical interventions, you have to do this because it's for the good of your child and you're not allowed to do things that they think are harmful to your child. Um, this is the argument they make on vaccines, for example. But on this issue, they'll say you can do something that isn't for the medical benefit for your, for, of your child and might even result in their death or harm. So about uh, there's a recent study from in Utah that found that 11.5 percent of circumcisions result in a botch of some kind, not just the, you know, the undesirable outcome of uh, pain or alteration of sexuality, but the surgery goes wrong in some way. And now there is a deformity of some kind, uh, an unintended surgical outcome that needs to be fixed. They'll, they'll, they're okay with that because, well, different cultures want to do different things. Um, and it's not even a medical perspective anymore in the argument they're making, but they were so forceful in that medical perspective that it's still in the culture of like, oh, there must be some benefits, you know? Uh, I think a lot of it again comes down to like, you know, what would it mean for them if they were wrong on this so greatly for so long? What would it mean for the legal liability for them? If that was true, what would it mean for them personally and their identity as someone who's, you know, we're here for the benefit of all children? How does how does that change who they are? Um, but you're right. There's the, the medical. It's not even being presented now by people who are in favor of allowing the practice. It's not even being presented as a medical thing anymore. It's a it's a choice thing, a choice of the parent, not the person who it's happening to in their perspective, which is a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely confuses things because people who are angry about their circumcisions, um, some of them want to go after their parents. And as somebody who is anti-circumcision, I still have compassion for the people who made the choice to go through with it because they were being educated that that was the best thing for their child at the time. And so like, Ah, uh, when that when the shift it's already happening, but when you have the majority of people believing that this is wrong in our country, it it there's going to be so much stress. Uh, are you familiar with the theory of cognitive dissonance? Of course, it's <laughs> every day in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's this um, theory that uh, essentially says. If you have a belief and a behavior that are incongruent, they're in conflict with each other, then you're more likely to change your belief to match your behavior rather than your behavior to match your belief, which is, to me, it seems counterintuitive. So when it comes to this, every time I learn something new about circumcision, which is usually how awful it is, it makes me so sick to my stomach and very angry. So I had watched your film and uh, I was in pain for a couple of weeks afterward. And then um, I, I was so excited to have this conversation with you. And then you tell me about the percentage of um, 
botched circumcisions there are and I get this new wave of information, right? Mm. So my my belief is I need to invest every bit of energy that I have, all of my time, all of my resources into getting this to stop. And then my behavior is to, you know, go on a hike with my dogs or eat or all of those things. And in order to cope with that, I'm like, well, maybe it it isn't so bad. Like mm. it, it can't be like, because <sighs> I just because I can't cope with how bad it actually is. So what mm. would you, what what advice do you have for me to get something to change and not just want to cry and hide? I really appreciate you bringing that up because it's something that I had to deal with at every stage of making the film, mm. right? Um, and the answer, I think, is that you have to feel those feelings as part of the process of change. So... If it sounds like what happens for you, and and it's very similar to what happens for me, is like the feeling of this issue both makes me want to create change and it also makes me feel sad in a way that is difficult to take the action necessary to do that. Correct. And I would make feeling the feelings and processing what comes up in you part of the change. So it's Mm -hmm. not like the change is just the world you and change and your growth is part of the change and your healing is part of it. So for me, when I have to do any kind of work on this issue, if there's something like that, I do the healing work on that first. And so I wouldn't say that if there is something really important you have to do, don't drop your self care, like going for a hike could be part of that you and the work that you do requires a certain amount of care and fuel and the parts of you that just have basic human needs like connection and feeling good are still part of the process so i would say that 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 the healing has to be part of it and that's one of the reasons why when i talk to people about this issue I really advocate doing healing work because the stuff that we're doing does involve bringing up a lot of things that are really triggering. And and that is the challenge that I think anyone who's experienced any kind of abuse or hardship has Mm -hmm. is that people who've been harmed are often not, not their best own best advocates because they have this trauma, which drives them to want to make change. But it also makes it difficult to make the change because they're often acting from trauma. So both of those could be true, that there's a need to do change and that doing the work on yourself could be part of it. And I know that for me, um, if I would try to do the film work or do work on this issue and just push through it, it'll take like eight hours to get a one-hour thing done. If I take two or three hours and I do the healing work, then it'll take a half hour to get done. Mm. But, but that's always the nature of it is that if you're trying to push through your own feelings, then you have a part of you or an, a, an aspect of your consciousness that's in resistance pulling the other way. Um, and the other thing that I found is that when I do that healing work within myself, then it becomes easier to talk to others. So when someone else gets triggered, I'll, I'll know what to do because I had that feeling. I've processed that in myself. So I wouldn't separate the two. Um, and I would, I would listen to the part of you that doesn't want to do the work and meet its needs at the same time. So a lot of the time when you're, there's these two separate needs, Um, people feel like they're in conflict when there actually might be a way to meet both of them at the same time. Like this conversation, uh, I don't think that it has to be stressful in any way yet. At the same time, we're doing something on the issue. Does that make sense? Yes. So I'm thinking about, um, where that conflict comes up for me. And part of it is that I don't want to, hurt anybody's feelings or make them feel like they are deficient in any way, but also acknowledge (laughs) 
the importance and value of foreskin. And so mm-hmm. I think it just comes back to what a gift your film is, right? Because yeah. I can go click, click, click and send that and it does all the work for me. So there can be two hours of self-care where I walk the dogs and I go to an ULA class and I masturbate or whatever I choose to do. <laughs> and then I like emails, do, 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 American circumcision. So I, yeah, again, That's a big thank you to you. <laughs> you. You help with the behavior side of cognitive dissonance. Well, that's part of the reason I made it is the goal is that it'll take someone from ignorant to expert in two hours. Mm -hmm. And I did it because for me, I'm somewhat introverted. So having that conversation over and over and over is really draining for me, but I love film. So Mm -hmm. I think that also is useful for figuring out making a difference on this issue is for a lot of people, they need to find the thing that feels good to them as far as what they can do. So, yeah, happy to help. Thank you. Um, do you have time for one more question? I have time for all the questions. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the one that comes to mind, which I, I think I've already answered, but want to make sure that I am getting this correct. Um, when we're having this conversation in my head, I'm arguing with you, right? Because I want to hear how other people think. And one of the things that keeps coming up is we put a needle into our newborn baby's bodies early on in their lives to give them a vaccine that they don't consent to or, you know, what any number of things, right? Like we'll stick them on a cold scale or we'll cut them off from their umbilical cord. And I think my rebuttal to this is that science has told us that this is medically beneficial to do. Whereas with circumcision, science has told us that it is not medically beneficial to do. Argument made? <laughs> Am I missing anything? Um, I think that that addresses it. I would address it from a slightly different perspective. Uh, Good. Can I hear it? Well, how do you know those things are beneficial? Like cutting the umbilical cord early, there's a lot of people I know who work in birth who will tell you that's not beneficial. That changes the a whole series of health things for the child. So then what do we do? How do we make any decisions? Uh, so the decisions that you make for a child, this, whenever we talk about this issue or any issue, there's sort of multiple layers you can talk about it on. You could talk about it on the layer of data. So we would do a lot of research on how does a particular thing change that child's life or experience or um, certain biofactors or things like that. You could also talk about it on the layer of assumptions. So if you do a particular, you know, what, what are the unspoken assumptions of a particular intervention? So for example, uh, the, one of the ones that people talk about is like, Oh, well, circumcision might reduce the risk of HIV. And I could give you, I could go through the data of that and show that that isn't true or compelling that the studies that were done on that were very poor science that more people left the study than stayed in, um, that there were a lot of contra studies that showed the opposite. But then you go to the assumption of, okay, well, let's pretend for a minute that's true. Why do you need to do that to babies? Are babies at risk of getting HIV? Um, Ah, so good. What? Uh, what makes you think that you have to do it? You know, if do you think that the data you have is not compelling enough that you could convince me as an adult? Like why, you know, if it's really, if like, if that's something I'm worried about as an adult, I could make a choice there, but why, why babies? So there's an assumption there, right? And, and if you just argue with the layer of data, then you don't get to the assumptions and the assumptions are really actually quite strange there of like that we have to do interventions for adult STDs on babies. But then you could go a layer deeper and go to the layer of values. So what values does that intervention imply? So 
obviously, I think reducing the risk of a disease is something that we all value and we would value that because we value human life. Um, you could reduce the risk of all sexually transmitted diseases if you legally mandated that everyone only was allowed one sexual partner and then rigorously enforced that, right? And there's entire sci-fi dysutopias that have been written about this. There's The Handmaid's Tale. Um, even 1984 has a junior anti-sex league, right? But I think if you were to propose that, people would be horrified because it contradicts our value of personal autonomy and sexual freedom and such a, a law you'd, you'd miss out on the freedom to love who you love in the way that you want to. So if you then propose removing a part of someone's sexuality so that they could never experience it with anyone, that's actually almost a more insidious thing and still contradicts with the same values. And so when you get to the question of values, then there's, there's something deeper there. And when someone says, Oh, well, it'll reduce the risk of HIV. There's essentially saying that you should remove a part of someone's sexuality, uh, and reduce their autonomy and freedom for their safety. Right. And there's a whole system of values that implies. So that's why when you, when you, I think the thing that you, you the argument you made about interventions on children is probably true on a data level, right? But there's also a lot of assumptions about, you know, doing things for the child's doing things because you think it's good for the child versus being attuned to the needs of the child and their experience of reality. Uh, and I question a lot of things that happen around birth because people say that, that, well, you know, that might be uncomfortable for the child, but we have this data that shows that it's good and that values the data or the, the convenience of the practitioner who is assisting in birth over the experience of the child who is forming their base assumptions about reality. So, for example, a lot of cesarean births happen uh, more frequently around four o'clock than in the morning because around four o'clock the doctor wants to go home. And that's got nothing to do with the mother or the child. It's got something to do with the doctor doing what's convenient for him. Uh, and you might say, well, you know, I, I actually, I remember I was at a, a medical event and there was a doctor there who said, well, we don't have any data to show that natural birth is somehow better or safer than cesarean birth. As if like changing the way that humans give birth through surgery was just a choice you could make that wouldn't impact anything because you didn't have any data showing a negative impact, that there wouldn't be other implications in terms of how we view ourselves to just change something so fundamental as how women give birth. So I, I get curious about the values questions such a thing raises. So you say, well, how do you make decisions for your children if, um, one of them might be a bad choice. It's like, well, what are your values? I think that I want my children, I want to do what will feel best and be good for them. And as an adult, would you make the choice to do that? You know, or would you want someone who, if there was someone in your life who had absolute power over you, which is what the relationship between a parent and a child is, right? A newborn infant is the, has the least power of anyone. Um, what decisions would you want someone who had absolute power over you to make? How would you want them to make decisions for you? So I, I know that there's a lot of research on how infants bond with their parents on, for example, natural birth or, uh, not clamping the cord or things like that that shows that there's a, a change both in the health of the child and in their emotional life and the experience of bonding with that parent that make me think that most of what people do in hospital birth probably isn't that good. But that's a longer conversation, mm -hmm. right? Because you have to get into the values and like, well, what's really important to you? And the difficulty of all of those short propaganda statements is that like they're really quick and surface. Well, like, well, it prevents a disease. Or uh well, parents make choices all the time. Like, yes, parents do make choices all the time. And 
if it is a parental choice, then what does that choice imply? You know, I think even when people make say, well, it's a parental choice. Okay. What are you teaching with that choice? I, I feel like circumcision, what it teaches from a, a values perspective is that if you're bigger and stronger than someone else, you get to do what you want to their body. That is the sort of underlying value there. Cause if I want you not to touch my body in that way and someone does, the only reason they can do that is because they're bigger and stronger. And that's a really interesting lesson to teach men in their first shared physical sexual experience with someone else. And if you're bigger and stronger, you get to do what you want. I think it's a really dangerous lesson to teach. Yeah. But again, even if you accept the premise, well, parents make choices. Okay. Well, let's evaluate that choice and the values it implies. You know, you might also have a choice in terms of, you know, people always make the comparison. They say, well, parents make all sorts of choices. They choose where their kids go to school and they choose what they eat. And it's like, yes. And, and some of those choices might be better than others. Like if you yeah. choose to leave your child in front of the TV for eight hours a day, that's a different choice than exposing them to books and teaching them how to read. And it's a different choice to feed them high fructose corn syrup versus fruits and vegetables. And like, just cause you say, well, it's a choice doesn't mean it's a good choice. And so I, I think every choice that a parent makes is going to imply some set of values. And that's the thing that I'm always curious about. So I know that's a, probably a way longer answer than you were looking for. And if you're talking to someone who's not ready to have a values conversation, the data might be enough to say, okay, well, I mean, the data doesn't support that choice. We'll go, okay. <laughs> um, but often there's a, there's another value that there's, that's coming up there of like, I think they might be afraid that if they would have made a wrong choice there, that they can't trust themselves as a parent. When in reality, they're one, they're going to make some wrong choices as a parent, mm -hmm. right? Like no one's perfect. Lots, yeah. <laughs> and instead, what they should do is trust their ability to learn and be curious and receive new information. And that maybe that could be a reason for self trust. But, you know, that's again, like you, the, the, there, have, there has to be a, if, if you're, going to have that kind of a conversation you have to have the awareness to see where that other person is coming from and i'll be the first to say i don't always spot it right like i'll have a conversation with someone and i'll just make a casual statement and they'll be really triggered i'll go oh i didn't realize that was there i didn't realize you had a trigger around that um because again on one hand it's not your responsibility to know all that about someone when you talk to them right mm -hmm. but sometimes in conversation that'll be the thing that comes up so I don't know, was that long answer? Did that actually answer your question or? It was really helpful. I'm okay. learning so much from you about how to have these conversations because I, I know how to do it to a degree. Um, but it's like playing soccer, right? I, I know like, mm. I know how many people should be on the field and where the boundaries are and like when you use your hands and when you use your feet, but there is finesse in how you do it. And you're, you're just like a, a master at the art of understanding this issue in all directions and, and planes. It's just really mm. helpful to, to practice dialogue with you. Yeah. I Thank hope, you. I appreciate I hope that. people are learning from it in that way. Um, I, I notice very often with this people, will make the argument, well, we can do this. This is true of a lot of different issues. We can do this because there's this other unexamined cultural value we have that it fits with. And a lot of the times people will argue from that value as opposed to going, I know, maybe we should examine that value too. We'll <laughs> <laughs> say, well, we do all these horrible, unnecessary interventions in the hospital birth. What's, what's the, why can't we do another horrible, unnecessary intervention that, um, the research doesn't actually support and is something the hospital can charge for also? It's like, well, I have, I have some problems with this premise. <laughs> you so, know? uh, what is that? I guess that brings up in my mind, what is your next film? Oh, it's probably something completely unrelated to this issue. And just, uh, actually, 
So the thing that I'm writing right now is a narrative film. Um, and I am, I am jokingly referring to it as a horror film about the healing process. Cause I think very often when people do a healing process, they think it'll be, he's just light and feel better. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's tried to heal from something knows that it isn't always like that. So I'm working Aww. on that. Uh, That's related. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. Yeah, I, so, I think I think it's related. I in my experience, a lot of healing happens through uh, communication, and so back to the conver- conversation about circumcision. I love the stories where um, caregivers will tell the children their kind of experience at birth, just like this is what was going on, and this is how I made the decision, and. Hmm. Uh, I just, I want to, you know, honor that I didn't have more information at that time. And I don't, yeah, apologize or, you know, make amends around it, actually bring it out into the open mm-hmm. rather than everybody having quiet shame about it. So I'd say too, cause I know there's a large community of what are known as regret parents. So parents who didn't know anything about this issue and then now feel bad when they find out later or also especially feel bad if there was a, a botch or something that went wrong. Uh, and there's a lot of tension I know between parents and children over this. And what I would say is that as a parent, the more permission you give your children to feel their feelings and make it okay for them to feel whatever they feel, even if they're mad at you, the more that they can feel those feelings in relationship to you. Mm. So if they're not allowed to feel angry, then if they want to honor their anger and feel that they have to break connection in the relationship to go do that. But if it's okay for them to be mad at you sometimes and angry with you, then they can be angry with you in relationship and not have to break that connection. That is profound. Yeah. Yeah. You, you throughout this have said the things that apply to much more than the conversation of circumcision and just human relations. Yeah. Well, that's what interests me about this is that it is so common and so unexamined. And at the same time, it deals with everything that's an identity level issue. It's everything about our sexuality, everything about how we relate in family structures, everything about how we relate to our own bodies. Um, and yet people, for some reason, when they look at the issue, they want to look at it through the lens of like, what percentage change in urinary tract infections among newborns does it, you know, and it's like, there's a lot more going on here than that. You know, I mean, we can look at it through that perspective. I can go into the data on that. I know that, but. You know, there's a lot more happening. Yeah, there's so so much more we could talk about. I'm just thinking, oh yeah, and then there's this and this and this that people say and rebuttals and watch American Circumcision. <laughs> if yeah, I know some people listening might be like, but you didn't get into the you know this aspect. Like it's all in the film. Every, everything you'd want to know. Yeah, you did a great job with it, and you're still doing a great job. I. Um, you know, continuing the conversation. What an honor. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's good talking to you. Thank you. So um, we do this segment on this explanations podcast called main squeeze, where we all do group kegels. And I haven't done a podcast in so long that my pubococcygeus muscles are, you know, they're just not the way they used to be. So I was thinking that we could do this segment just briefly and get some deep breathing in to maybe come off of the the heat of the conversation, but not lose the inspiration to maybe act in ways that are congruent with our, you know, beliefs, values, data, whatever um, is important to us. How does that sound? Uh, I'm down. This is the strangest things anyone's ever asked me to do on a podcast, and I'm totally into it. Let's go. Awesome. (laughs) Okay, so I think that a very simple way to do it is to kind of imagine that you're going up an escalator or flight of stairs um, 
And so I will count eight and in that way, just um, clenching your pelvic flooring more and more and more. And then we'll hold eight. So you're kind of at the top of the building, looking out over the horizon and we'll take some deep breaths and then we'll come down the flight of stairs eight. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. I'm going to just wiggle my dog's butt really quickly because she's snoring. Okay. <sighs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Hold. Take a deep breath. Think about happy babies. <laughs> Exhale. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Two, one. You can put a few more squeezes in there if you feel that was inefficient in any way. Noted. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this with me. It's a big deal. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, anything else that we should know? I am starting to put together a resource for activists to help connect people who are interested in this issue with other people who are interested in this issue and it's not done yet but when it is i will share it with you and i will share it all over social media oh thank you okay in the meantime we have circumcisionmovie.com and we have brandon marotta b-r-e-n-d-o-n-m-a-r-r-o-t-a uh, one R, two T's. One R, two T. I'll put yeah. it in the description as well. And I want to give a shout out to the, the huge supporters, our bosses at patreon.com slash explanations podcast, Ben Trammell, Don Flint, the Millers, and Zipwa. Thank you for affording this conversation that I got to have with Brandon, all the learning. Brandon, you've been amazing. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you. And Cora and Paro, I'm still learning. 